Thanks that you have redeemed us, you've called us, you've made us yours, you've placed a new spirit inside of each one of us. You've given us each other, you've given us your word. We have everything that we need. And so we gather this morning because we acknowledge that you have provided these things, and yet this time that we have that's set aside, that's yours, uh, we acknowledge that uh, this is the time that you will use. And so we ask now as we come to your word that you would speak. Um, You would take the truth of your word and you would dig it deep into our hearts that you would transform us and that we would become more like Christ. That when we leave here this morning, we would know him a little better. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go open your Bibles to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm going to continue on where I left off last week in this section. Chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. 2 Corinthians 2, 12 through 17. Let me read for us as we find that. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. I opened last week and just shared a little bit about the, the importance of this passage and indeed the next few chapters, this section in Second Corinthians for me personally as 19 years ago, uh, I spent a summer in uh, Budapest, Hungary on a missions project and we studied the passage and I mentioned last week how oftentimes when you spend a, sniff, a significant time of, of your life in a passage, somehow the way you see and the way you think about that time and about that passage somehow blend together. And as I was reminiscing this last week on that, in that time period when I, when I traveled to, to Hungary, um, I was reminded that I turned 21 there and uh, it was quite an event, as you can imagine, and, and uh, we as a team went out, the team I was with, we went to a, a restaurant, it was a little Italian restaurant down by the river, Italian restaurant in Hungary, it was, it was pretty good, and uh, a friend of mine, a, a person on the team, had brought a, a Snickers bar, a Snickers bar for my birthday, and I still remember we, we sat and they surprised me with it, of course, Snickers bars were not terribly available there, but uh, she brought it, and I was, I was really excited because I really like Snickers bars. And she set it in front of me on a plate. They brought it out, and they put a candle in the middle of it, one candle in the middle of the Snickers bar, and they lit it, and they brought it out. And, you know, it's just a great memory. What, what really caps the memory, though, is that the, the, the candle that they used was one of those trick candles. And I, I blew it out, and, of course, you know what they do. They, they, they light back up. What was interesting is that there was a, a lot of people in the restaurant watching me as I blew out the candle and to watch it light back up and I'd blow it out again and it would light back up. And by the end of the time we eventually got it blown out and kept out, we had a, we had a whole audience of people just amazed at this candle that would light back up on its own. 
And so I had this, this memory of this time of my birthday, and I'm trying to figure out how it fits into my message, but it was a memory. <laughs> it was a good memory. <laughs> that summer ended like this. Our last day, we would go out to the city, and we would walk around. And we, we honestly would just walk, and we would meet people, and we would begin to build friendship and share our faith. We came home because it began to pour down rain. It was our very last day. We are getting ready to leave the very next day. And this, this is the memory that caps my experience there. And remember, sitting in the flat, and there was a little patio that looked out towards the, towards the south across the river. And there was a double rainbow our very last day of the summer. The very last day it was there. And I don't know what that means to you. For me, it's just, this picture is a reminder that God said, I've been with you. I, I will provide for you. I will take care of you all of these days. And this, this picture for me is a, is a memory. As I think about this passage and, it, and God's promise, if you think, if you recall in our call to worship and the affirmation of faith where we've read this passage in 2 Corinthians together, I've left out a verse when we have read that. And the, 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 the verse I left out of the last section was the question that Paul asks when he says at the end of this section, who is sufficient for these things? And it's a reminder that God makes us sufficient. I'm going to end there this morning. But as we look at this text, there's a couple things I want to remind us from last week. First of all, there's a central image that I began to kind of build on last week that Paul addresses. The central image that he uses is that of a triumphal procession. And the triumphal procession, if you remember, it was one where a king would walk through the, come to the city in victory. And it was a picture, an image that they would have that would be very familiar with them. And yet the setting in which... Paul is writing to those in Corinth, if you remember, his relationship with them and their response to him as the apostle was not terribly good. That indeed that they had, they had begun to question his authority because others had come in and questioned him, his authority as an apostle, his credibility, and the message of the gospel. And so as he writes to them and he says, I was in trust and I couldn't preach there even though a door is open for me, it reminds us of the setting in which he's preaching. And that he's teaching to them, he's talking to them. The setting in which this triumphal procession takes place is in a fallen world. It's in a real world where there's real hurt. Because Paul is experiencing that. He's asking questions. How will they respond? How will the Corinthians respond? He had visited them. He had had what he called a painful visit. Perhaps painful for him, but more for them. Because they didn't respond as he attempted to correct them. He had written to them a severe letter, as he called it, to try to correct them. And yet there he sits and he wonders as he's waiting for Titus to come back with the message, how are they going to respond to this message? And he's asking questions. He's wondering, how will the church respond in Corinth? How will it make progress if they don't respond rightly? And so there's a real spiritual aspect of their condition that he's asking questions about. There's real questions there that he doesn't know the answer to. But the image that he employs, the image that he uses and he's reminded of and he reminds us of is the image of this triumphal procession that Christ leads all of his people in. And we understand that there's great hurt in his relationship with them because of the relationship that was there that, that, that they had questioned him. And if you could put yourself in that situation, you would know if you've been hurt by people that you have spent a great deal of time with. If you've been questioned by people who have you spent a great deal of time with, you can imagine what that would feel like. And so... Last week when we asked the question of the setting of this procession, the question, the answer is, it's in a real world with fallen people, with as fallen people, hurt, broken, wondering how things will turn out. And yet the promise that God gives us as he leads us in triumph 
isn't that we won't experience those difficulties, but the promise, however, is that as he leads us in the midst of those difficulties, there is nothing in this fallen world that will keep us from experiencing his plan. There's nothing that will prevent him from leading in triumph. Nothing will stand in the way, even though we know that we, we walk down this road and we don't know what will come exactly, but he does. So the real setting in which we live and walk is a real one where people are broken, where we hurt, we have pain. The second question that I asked last week as we looked at the passage was, what is the position that Paul sees himself in as this triumphal procession takes place? And if you remember, this king, as he proceeds through the city, this victorious king or this commander, however it might be, in the procession you remember that there are captives that are from the battle, that the king would take captives and he would bring them with him in this procession. And the, and the captives in the procession is a reminder of all those who are watching that he is the king and that his, he is mighty in battle, that he is the one who has won the battle. And so what is put on display in these captives is the might and the power of the victor. And so how does Paul see himself in this procession? Does he see himself as a victor riding with Christ on a horse right next to him? Or does he see himself as a captive in this procession? And as I mentioned last week, and I believe is, is true, that a more accurate understanding of that is that Paul would see himself as a captive. He would see himself not as a victor, but as a captive of Christ who had taken him captive and made him his own. And so now he proceeds as a slave of Christ, but a slave unlike any other, a slave that has real life, a slave that has real freedom, a slave that knows his Lord and his master. And so this is the setting in which Paul writes he sees himself as a slave, and the same is for us, that we are Christ's captive, and he leads us in triumph. And so this is the setting that Paul, as he writes, he reminds us that really the background of this text is that we, we, it's in a real world, and that this triumph, this, this procession as it proceeds, is one in which we find ourselves captive to him as, as we walk on. Now we're going to move forward. I want to ask the question that's a little more on the front of the text, if you will. It's a little more in the foreground of what Paul is saying. And the question I want to ask is, what is the nature of the triumphal procession? What can we expect from it as we are led in triumph? Another way to put it is, as Christ leads in this triumphal procession, what is the jurisdiction of his triumph? What are the boundaries of it? How far does his victory extend? And there's two key words in verse 14 that Paul tells us as he explains this is the jurisdiction of this triumphal procession. In verse 14, Paul writes, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. As he describes this, pro this procession, he says that at all times, always he leads us. And then he expands on that and he says that he will everywhere lead us and he will he will cause us to be the fragrance of the knowledge of him so what's the jurisdiction always and everywhere at all times and in every place and I want you to think about Paul, Paul's situation you think about his life if you consider you read through the book of Acts how vital this truth would be to encourage him how vital it would be for him to know that there is no place that Christ doesn't lead him that there was no time in which Christ is not leading. If you think about Paul and his life, you think about shipwrecks and you think about beatings. You think about free, free travel as, as he passes through and he shares the gospel. 
Think about as he's beaten and he's drugged out of town for dead. Think about being shipwrecked on Malta. You think about being imprisoned for close to five years with trumped up charges that have been placed against him. How encouraging the truth that God leads in triumph, always and everywhere, there's no circumstance in which he's not leading, would be to him as it is for us, no matter the circumstances. When I was in, 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 um, in Ethiopia this last, uh, last month, I had an opportunity to sit down and have breakfast with a man uh, who was with a ministry called Ambassadors for Christ, the same ministry that Dan Rudman works with. And his name was Shifarah. It's a great name, Shifarah Fayessa. Anyway, I sat down and had breakfast with Shifra. One of the things he told me as he explained, I said, hey, tell me your story. Tell me about coming to Christ. And he shared about as a young man coming to know Christ, he was in his late teens. He'd come to understand what it meant to know Christ. And it was under the communist rule in Ethiopia at the time. And as we discussed, he said, I had spent six months in jail and I was beaten consistently for my faith. I was beaten for my faith. And he'd said it with a smile on his face. I was beaten for Christ. He understood what it meant that God led always and everywhere. And guess what? At this point in time, as he went on to say, the communism is gone. And now we can freely preach the gospel. But he understood what it meant that God leads in triumphal procession always and everywhere. And as Paul describes this for us, he says that he always... And the question is, what does it mean he always? Well, he always does. At all times and all places. Chad read through uh, the passage in Hebrews chapter 13 today. If you remember that, he, as the author of Hebrews, he talks about our money, and he says, don't love money, but be content with what you have. And you remember the promise at the end of that, he says, because he has said, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Another way to say that he always leads us is to say that he promises to never leave us and never forsake us. If you'll turn real quick to Joshua chapter 1, I want to read the verse from which that, that phrase comes from. Joshua chapter 1, as we consider, what does it mean that he always leads us in triumph? Joshua chapter 1, verse 5. If you know the setting where of, of here we have that, uh, the, set, the setting is that uh, Moses has died. Joshua now will succeed Moses and leading the people into the promised land and of course as you can imagine following in the shoes of Moses is not a real pleasant thing so God comes and he encourages Joshua and in verse 5 he says this he says no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life just as I was with Moses so I will be with you and then he finishes with this promise I will never leave you or forsake you. That same promise that the, Hebrew, the author of Hebrews picks up on. If you consider that the words, I will, just as I was with Moses, so I'll be with you. I will never leave you, I'll never forsake you. You get a little picture of what it means that he always leads in triumph, that he is always leading. But think about the last 40 years of this period of time in Israel's history. Do you remember where they had spent the, mo- the bulk of that 40 years? They'd spent that 40 years wandering in the desert. And so the question you ask is, were you really leading them? Were you really leading the Israelites, the people of Israel, in triumph during that time period? And the answer is yes. Even though as they walked through those 40 years in the wilderness, do you remember a couple of things that are so true? Did God leave them or forsake them? He did not. Was it the result of their own unfaithfulness? Yes, it was. But you remember that God fed them, 
manna day in and day out as they wandered those 40 years. That as he led them, he provided and cared for them. That he clothed them. It says that their clothes did not wear out in the desert in those 40 years. And that he protected them. There are a number of occasions, if you read through that, se- that, that section, where God protected them against their enemies. And so during that period of time in which you might ask the question, was he really leading in triumph? Yes, he was. He protected them. He provided them. He did not abandon them. And so what does it mean that he always leads? It might look like a lot of different things, but we can know that it means that he will never leave us and never forsake us. Another way to say it is that he never, I'm not sure if this is good grammar or not, never does he not lead us. Never does he not lead us is another way to say he always leads us, no matter the circumstances. But we also know this always means that that as he leads us, that he leads us in a context of his conquest, in the context of what he's doing. If you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 28, the very last verse of the book of Matthew. Some familiar verses for us, perhaps, as Jesus gives us what has been called the Great Commission, his commissioning of his people. Verses 18 through 20. of chapter 28 of Matthew. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This is the point. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And the point here is Jesus gives us his promise to be present with us always. It is in the context of his sending. That as he promises to go with us, it is connected and inseparably connected with his mission. It's inseparably connected with what he is doing in the world. It's inseparably connected with the expansion of his kingdom. So the promise that he always leads us in triumph is to remind us that it's his triumph. It's his kingdom. It's his plan. And I think that's what it means to be his captives. We're captive to his will and his plan. And we submit ourselves to what he wants to do in the world, not just what we want to do. And so as he is the one that's leading and is not. And so we think about what does it mean that he's leading always in triumph? Never does he not lead. And as he always leads, it's inseparably connected to his mission. It's, it's connected to what he is doing. But then as Paul goes on back in, in 2 Corinthians 2, he goes on to, ex, to expand, if you will, this jurisdiction. It's always, at all times. But then he says, this is what happens. In this triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. That through us, again, it's, what's key there is that it's through us. It's not us, but it's him at work in and through us. And what is he doing? As he is leading in triumph at all times, he is spreading through us the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere that we go. Literally, it's every place, every place that we find ourselves. And you see the imagery again of the... The procession, he picks up on it. This fragrance, this term is, is really looking at, it's, rem, it's reminiscent of the, this procession as it goes through the streets of this king as he leads the captives. There would be, typically, there would be uh, these spices and incense that would be let out, that would, be, that would emanate from this procession. And so he says that as we are carried through the streets, if you will, this is reminiscent, this is, this is a reminder, this is, it smells of Christ in leading and that we will emanate, if you will, we will carry out that, that fragrance of Christ. And so that's the picture. And if you can imagine in that procession that what's going on there is that 
the king, as these smell of these spices would come out, it would remind everybody who is, who is there and who is present that as he rules, as he reigns, as he is mighty in power, that it's a good thing, it's a pleasant thing. It reminds those, and the same is true for us. It says that we're the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ, that as we live out the gospel in our lives, as we live this out, as we follow him, that we are communicating, that we are dispensing, if you will, the fragrance of what it means to know Christ. The fragrance, the pleasantness of his rule, um, it, re- it reminds others that the gospel is a good thing, that his captivity is life and it's freedom for all of us. It's not just data about Jesus. It's not just this is who he is, although it begins there, but it goes even further and it says this gospel is a good thing to be taken in by. And so what's the outcome? The outcome is as, as this knowledge is spread, every, it's spread everywhere and in every place. There's no place where it does not spread because where we go, it goes as we live out the gospel. And, and as we live this out, this knowledge of Christ changes everything. And I want us to think about what does it mean that in every place this fragrance goes? In every place, and again, of course it means geographical, any place that we find ourselves physically, what do we carry with us? Christ. And others see it and they get a sense of it and they smell it. And it's not just in our words, it certainly is in our words, it's how we act, it's what we do and how we respond. It's all of that about our lives that, that puts out the fragrance of Christ. And so whether we find ourselves at home or neighborhood or at work or Ethiopia or St. Louis or Barnabas or Mendenhall, you fill in the blank. No matter what place we find ourselves, the gospel goes with us. And he promises that through us, he will spread, he will manifest, he will make known the fragrance of Christ, the goodness of the gospel. But the, the, this idea of place expands even beyond just location. Because it's possible to be in the same location and yet to be in a different place. And for those of us who have lost loved ones, if you've had someone die that's close to you, if you've had your father, your mother, a child, you know that even though you might be in the same location, that the place in which you live, the situation in which you live drastically changes. And the promise that God gives us is that as we follow Christ, as he leads us in every place, every situation we find ourselves, we will spread. We have the opportunity that he will spread through us the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ. As we experience his gospel in a new way in those settings, that he will do that. A number of other situations, I won't go on, you know them. But no matter what situation that God takes us, he promises that this fragrance of Christ goes with us. The fragrance of the knowledge of him. And so we live that out. It's possible for our location to be different, be the same, but our situation to be different. When we were traveling, we were beginning our, our trip to Ethiopia. Um, we, we, this was a Wednesday morning. It was on March 13th, or it was on June 13th. There was 10 of us, five kids and five adults. We had 17 bags that we were checking, okay? 17 suitcases. Two of, I guess two of those packages were pack and plays we were taking. We had a lot of stuff. We showed up at KCI early, we were on time, and we pretty much took over the entryway there as we began to check in for our flight. And there's 10 of us and some friends that are gathered around, and we have all these bags, and we're ready to go. We have all of our passports, we have all of our tickets, we have everything that we need. We're set to go, and we show up. Well, things changed very quickly as I walked up to the ticket counter, 
and uh, to, to check in, to begin to check in our baggage and to say, you know, we're going to Ethiopia today, you know. And the person looked at me at the ticket counter and she said, I hope you're not on flight 7272 to Washington, D.C. And I said, as a matter of fact, we are. And we're not just going to D.C., we're going to Addis Ababa from there. And she said, well, that flight's been canceled, and I'm not sure if I can get you there today. And as you can imagine, what set in place was uh, quite a process in my own heart as I attempted to be the fragrance of Christ. I'm not sure what I smelled like then. <laughs> what do you say? <laughs> uh, we have to get to Washington, D.C. by 8.30 tonight. Well, the story goes on. I, I, she left. She, she literally just walked away from the counter and said, I need to figure this out. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd been fairly, um, I'd been as nice as I really possibly could, honestly. <laughs> I, I was. And, and Chris Bay came up, and, and he played good cop, and I played bad cop. And, and I don't know if that helped or not, but... But there we were, uh, waiting in KCI, all this luggage, and the last words from her was, I don't think I can get you there tonight. I don't think, and in fact, we didn't know at what point we could even get on flights later into Ethiopia. We were in the very same place, and yet our situation had changed in where we found ourselves. And the issue is we find ourselves in these new places is to remember that everywhere Christ promises that we would spread his fragrance, that we would spread the fragrance, manifest that. But the issue as we enter those places, right, is we just want to get out of them. It's just time to fix it and move on, and yet there's something more that he wants to do in us and through those situations. He wants to do something, and he calls us to be reminded of that, and yet the beauty of it is whether we're aware of it or not, he is and he will do something through us. He will cause his fragrance to be spread to a broken world around us. To continue that story, a little bit later what we did, and we, we gathered, we, we thought that probably the smart thing to do was to pray. Uh, we learned that in the process, and so we gathered as a team and around all the luggage and, and, and just gathered and we prayed. And, and certainly the focus of our prayer is, Lord, would you get us to Washington, D.C. by 8.30 tonight? Now, he didn't answer that prayer exactly, and you can get the rest of the story from the rest of the crew. But it wasn't too long after that, the the gal with the ticket person came back and she said, okay, I can get you there. And she said, you're going to go on three different routes to get there. And so she sent the Pratt family through Dallas and Chris Bay through Atlanta. And she sent Chris or Sean and the girls and Connie through Chicago. Okay, so, we're, so then immediately we, it was kind of this explosion. We all take off. Now here's what was happening this whole time. There were some people watching us. And we didn't know there were some people watching us exactly. These people watching us happened to be Ethiopians. And they were on their way to Addis Ababa at the same time we were. Now, as we, as we transferred flights, and I showed up at the gate for the next flight with, our, with the Pratt family in tow, and this, this man pulls me aside. He said, um, I don't know why, he said, would you, would you watch my daughter and her daughter, my granddaughter, on this flight? He, his daughter, Cassie was her name, and then his, daughter, his granddaughter, Hewat, was going on this flight, and she was traveling. Her English wasn't very good. Uh, and she was traveling back to, to Addis Ababa. Our family was on that flight with her. And so we, of course, okay, yeah, you know, we had this little girl. We have these two little girls that love little girls. And so we took that flight to Dallas. And then we spent about two hours in the airport in Dallas with, with Cassie and with Hewat. We ate with them and hung out with them and walked. And our girls played with their little girl. 
and then we took the flight from Washington D.C. to da or from Dallas to Washington D.C. and then Washington D.C. to Rome and then Rome to Addis Ababa and we showed up in Addis Ababa with Cassie and Hewat. There we were. We spent a long time. I don't even know how long it was with Cassie and with Hewat, um, off and on. And this is something that I have to raise my voice so I don't cry. But that that that. Cassie said to my wife early on as we began to kind of accompany them and she watched my daughters with, uh, with her daughter and uh, she said this. My wife told me this. I didn't even know this until later on. She said, Cassie said to me she, when we were beginning, she said, you are Christian people? You are Christian people? <laughs> How did she know that? If she watched me at the ticket counter, she probably wouldn't have got that impression. <laughs> But I don't know. And Kelly and I, I said, how did she know that? And she I don't know. Could have been the kids. Maybe she watched us pray. Maybe, maybe anybody going to Ethiopia. I, I'm not sure what it was. But she said, you are Christian people. And both Kelly and I were just amazed that she would see that. And that whole process. Because I didn't really care about being the fragrance of Christ in that setting. All that I and we really cared about was getting there if the truth were to be told. And yet, something happened. Unbeknownst to us, unintentional by us, and yet, Christ, as he led in triumph in that whole confusion, he led us. And guess something was happening. The fragrance of Christ was being seen and tasted and smelled by others in that whole setting. Maybe they watched us pray. We didn't pray, Lord, help us to be, you know, fragrance to others around us. We pray, just get us there. And yet God and his promise and his sovereignty and his goodness and his grace for us and for Cassie and her daughter, they saw something. Not because of us, but because of him. Well, the nature and jurisdiction of this triumphal procession is that he always leads. He never not leads. Never does he not lead, and he always leads in the context of his mission and what he's doing. And everywhere he promises to spread through us, manifest, make known to others this fragrance of the knowledge of Christ. Well, well Paul goes on in verse 15. In verse 15, he expands on what's happening here, this jurisdiction, if you will. And we see that God is pleased as his gospel goes to everyone. Verse 15, 4, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. And who is sufficient for, for such a thing? And you see here that as he begins to expand on this, this jurisdiction, as he describes the nature of this, we see that the fragrance in verse 14 is a fragrance to others, that others smell. The aroma in verse 15 is the aroma of Christ to God. And so he shifts his imagery. He moves his imagery from this procession to the tabernacle of worship. The same word, the same picture is, a, is the picture of the sacrifices that were offered in the temple in which it says that God, as, he, as, it, as they went up, it was a pleasing aroma to him. It was pleasing to him as these sacrifices came. And so we, in our lives, as we're led in captive by him, in procession, this triumphal procession, are an aroma, a pleasing aroma to God. As we're led by him, and again, these, these sacrifices from the Old Testament, where did they point? Was it just the, the, the animals and the death and the blood that God was pleased in? No, it wasn't. What he was pleased with in that aroma was that all of those things pointed towards Christ. 
All those things were reminiscent and types of the one who would come. And they were pleasing because Christ is pleasing. And we are pleasing to God because Christ is pleasing to him. And we are in Christ. And we're led in captivity, in his captivity. And so there's a, there's, there's a pleasure that God takes. As we're led by him, as his regenerated and grateful captives, and as through us we, this, this gospel is spread in our words and our lives, God is pleased. And here's the beauty of this passage. He says he is pleased as our message goes among those who are saved and those who are perishing. As this gospel goes out in the presence of those who will be saved and those who are perishing. And I think the point in this passage is, isn't so much the who is saved and who is perishing. We know that both of those things are true. That as the gospel comes, it draws a clear line between life and death. But what we see here in these two categories of people, those who are being saved and those who are perishing, is a picture of all of humanity. As the gospel goes out to everyone, no matter how they respond, as the gospel goes, as it is lived in our lives, it is a fragrance of Christ to God. And so God is pleased with us. He is pleased with Christ, no matter the response. And so there's no failure on our part. We don't have to worry, how is he going to respond? Because he is pleased no matter how people respond, no matter what they will do. The emphasis is here is really on the activity and the pleasure of God. God is the active party. He is the one doing the saving. He is the one taking the pleasure in our activity. He is the one that is pleased as we live out this faith that he has given to us. As we're led in this procession, among fallen and broken people. This gospel that's transformed our lives, we live as his captives. He always leads us. It's always in the context of his mission. He never forsakes us. And it's always going to everyone. We never know who's going to be watching us. We never know how that fragrance will be caught, whether we intend it or not. And God is pleased because it is the gospel of his son that's being manifest. It's Christ that's being seen. Well, how... Can it be pleasing to God if some are saved and some perish? I don't know that I can fully answer that question. But what the pleasure here is taking place is the pleasure in his people. It's in, it's in us because of Christ in the context of all. As one author put it, grace, even when it's rejected, doesn't cease to become grace. Grace, even when it's rejected, doesn't cease to become grace. And grace, as it's broadcast brings glory to God. Implications is that this gospel comes, it has an effect, it draws a line between life and death, it cannot come and not make an effect. And Paul understands that as he calls us to be this aroma of Christ to God in the midst of those who will smell it and go, I want this, and those who reject it, who don't want to respond to it. And the question is, how does this encourage us? What do we do with this? Well, here's the beauty of it. One, as we're led in triumph, we can't lose. He is always the one leading. He is always the one working in and through us. He's the active party. We're the vessels through which he works. Everywhere we can be confident that he leads us. He is putting on display the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ. And the bottom line is we can't lose. We can't fail as we live this out. No matter the response of those around us. The important thing for us is to remember our role and God's role. What's important is to know that we're merely the vessels. We're merely to be faithful to what he's called us to. 
His is to save. We have a great privilege and opportunity to be his aroma. I'm going to read just a a couple sentences from Leslie Newbigin, um, a book called The Gospel in a Pluralist Society. Leslie Newbigin spent uh, 40 years as an Anglican missionary in in India. He had a good taste of what failure, at least from our perspective, would look like. And yet, as he talks about mission and the mission that God has called each of us to, he says... There is no room for anxi- either for anxiety about our failure or for boasting about our success. There is room only for faithful witness to the one in whom the whole purpose of God for all of history has been revealed and affected, the crucified, risen, and reigning Christ. There's no room for anxiety about failure or boasting in success because it's him, it's God who leads us. And then the final question he asks, who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient to be, to put on display Christ to a world that's watching? Who is sufficient to be led and captive and to die to ourselves on a daily basis? Who is sufficient to represent God to man? Does anyone want to raise their hand? I don't. And yet, he leaves it there. And it's not rhetorical because he does answer the question. The answer is clear. The answer for us is that the one is competent. The one is sufficient is the one whom God has commissioned. And look in the next verse, 17. He says, For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, chosen by him, redeemed by him, set apart by him, and then commissioned for his service. Perhaps our commissioning isn't exactly like Paul's, but our commissioning is nonetheless authentic. As he's called us to him, and then we have Christ's words to go and to make disciples. As we're commissioned by him, we have become and we become competent. And I'll conclude with these verses in 4 through 6 of chapter 3. He goes on to answer the question. He says, who's competent, who's sufficient for these things? Such confidence, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us competent to be ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And you see there a little picture. This competency comes from the fact that he lives in us, that he comes and he dwells in us, and he has made us competent because of his presence, because of his spirit that indwells us. It should give us great confidence to move forward, to remember he will never not lead us, To remember that his leading is always in the context of what he wants to do. And that as we go and we bring pleasure to him, no matter the response. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, on one level I kind of get a hold of these things. At another I'm not certain. And yet I've tasted them. And each of us at different points in our lives, our eyes have been opened to see that you do lead. And I know that many of us this morning are in those situations, those places where we wonder, are you leading? We wonder, how can the fragrance of Christ be seen here? How will any good be done? And yet, I pray for faith. I pray that we would see and believe you, no matter the circumstances. As Warren prayed, whether we're shouting for joy or shouting in pain, that you would enable us. And that somehow, in those times, in those places that the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ would be manifested, that others would taste and see in and through our suffering. 
and that we would be reminded that you are pleased even with our struggles. That you're able because of your sovereignty to work even in the midst of our failures, in the midst of a fallen world, to bring your gospel and this great aroma and fragrance to them. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I ask you to stand as we come to the benediction. The benediction, uh, the response is, I will follow Christ who makes us competent. Hallelujah. I will follow Christ who makes us competent. And purposely I put in that I, it's personal, we make the decision, but he makes us. And I think the beauty is we leave here this morning, he makes us as his people. And those who are worshiping today who identify with Christ, he makes all of us individually and corporately competent to be his messenger. So receive this as God's benediction this morning. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that it's at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. And all God's people said, I will follow Christ who makes us competent. Hallelujah.